Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. My guest today, filmmaker Tony Palmer, knows how to tell a story, particularly when it involves musicians. He's made more than 100 films, featuring everyone from Cream to Stravinsky, Jimi Hendrix to Yehudi Menuhin, Leonard Cohn to Richard Wagner. He collaborated with Frank Zappa on the surreal cult classic 200 Motels and with his friend John Lennon on All You Need Is Love, a multi-part series on the early days of rock and roll. Tony Palmer's work has been recognized with over 40 international awards. Not bad for someone who fell into filmmaking. Well, if I tell you the true story, um, I'm inclined to believe that you won't take it at my word, but I promise you this is what happened. I was at Cambridge University and had ambitions to be a a minor academic. We're talking about October 1963, and I went to a press conference given by the Beatles, who were then famous, but not intergalactically as so, as they became later on. And I went representing the university newspaper. And at the press conference held in the then regal cinema, Uh, at lunchtime. Uh, They were giving a concert that night. I just thought the whole thing was rather silly. And as we were milling around afterwards, uh, this rather scruffy lad came up to me and he said, "Um, you didn't ask any questions. And I said, no, that's perfectly true. Why not? Well, I thought it was all rather silly. Yes, it was very silly, he said, very silly, because it was very typical of those early Beatles conferences where they were sort of just larking about. And then he said, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a, I'm a student. What of? And I was doing something called moral sciences. Don't be confused by that. It had nothing to do with morality, let alone science. And then he surprised me and said, would you take me around the university this afternoon? And I first said, no, why not? Well, you'll be mobbed, and that's not my idea of fun. Right. And he, so he said, well, how about if I come in disguise? So I was having my bluff called <laughs> at every turn. So finally I agreed. So I met him outside the hotel where he was staying an hour or so later. 
And sure enough, this chap turned up in this enormous fedora hat, a completely stupid, straggly beard. And if I say it was a dirty Macintosh, that's about right. And we both sort of just fell around laughing. And he said, so he took the disguise off. And I managed to take him into King's College Chapel, which is that famous Henry VIII chapel where the carols come from at Christmas time. But rather more importantly, I got him into the library at Trinity College, which is designed by Christopher Wren. It's always known as the Wren Library. Now, strictly speaking, we were trespassing because I wasn't supposed to be there, because I wasn't at that college, and he certainly wasn't supposed to be there. But having yes. got him in, I mean, he was just taking books off every shelf he could see. I couldn't get him out of there. And it occurred to me that this was an essential moment in John's life, as he later told me many times, that he suddenly realized, as you said, being a war baby, that he'd had no formal education. And that having been carried away in this sort of wave of Beatlemania, so young, comparatively speaking, that uh, he realized what he had missed. Eventually, I got him out of there. And he just he said, oh, come to the concert. Oh, I was going to the concert anyway. And he scribbled a telephone number on a piece of paper and said, uh, call me when you're coming to London. I said, well, I'm actually not coming to London. I'm staying here and hopefully will be some sort of completely minor and insignificant academic. Well, 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 he said. So three years later, I eventually joined the BBC, still having absolutely no ambitions to make films, let alone get involved in, in any kind of documentary making. And I still had this bit of paper with this phone number. So I thought, well, nothing ventured, nothing gained. So I telephoned the number. And to my absolute astonishment, somebody answered the phone and it was clear from the girl's tone of voice that I was the 400th person who'd rung up that morning, said, <laughs> John, John Lennon said to call. And I said, well, he really did, but don't worry about it. This is my phone number. Put the phone down. Half an hour later, a guy called Derek Taylor, you will know of Derek Taylor. He was the Beatles. I know Derek Taylor. Famous publicist. Press agent. Yeah. Rang me up and said, I've got a message for you from John. So at this point, I'm kind of in a state of shriveled excitement because now they were intergalactically famous. And I kept thinking, what the hell is this message going to be? It's who the hell is this? What does he want? Why doesn't he leave me alone? So nervously, finally, I said, well, what is the message? Quick as a flash, Derek came back with the reply, well, John wants to know why it's taken you three years to call him. <laughs> And that was the beginning of a rather bizarre relationship between the two of us. Interesting you mentioned that about Lenin and his yearning for, for greater education. Uh, I worked with an actress once who shall remain nameless. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but this actress was someone who we were talking about the scenes and there was an historical component and uh, the director was there and we're having a meeting. And then we went into her trailer and we talked a little bit more about the film and uh, uh, some aspect of history that informed the project. And I was going on and on and holding forth on some of the research I'd done and mentioning this in this book and so forth. And she started sobbing. She burst out sobbing. And I said, what's the matter? And she said, she said, I didn't go to college. And she goes, and I regret it every day of my life. She goes, how I wish I'd gone to college. And she was a beauty queen. She was a gorgeous woman when she was young, and it was all modeling and advertising, and then right into Hollywood. And uh, she said, I never went to school. And she said, and I consider it one of the most uh, staggering acts of self-robbery you could imagine. I wish I had. And you think about what Lenin might have been as a writer had he had, he had a more of a formal education uh, post-high school, you know. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, 
he was a man of such enormous imagination and energy yes. and enterprise and creativity and courage that, right. as you said, I mean, had he benefited from... On the other hand, you know, once you start benefiting, quotes, unquote, from a formal education, to some extent it restricts you. And to some extent it prevents you uh, from these huge leaps of imagination that you might otherwise have. When you make a film, and you've made quite a few films, when you're doing research about Wagner, it's different when you're relying on what other people said about that person, and you're having to sift through their conclusions and assertions about someone who you don't get a chance to meet, and then you meet the person and you write your own film based on your observations. Can you describe the, the difference between the two? Well, the, the amount thing, of work involved. The, the thing I've learned about uh, making films about people who are alive or appear to be alive, I think is more accurate, <laughs> is that practically everybody you talk to doesn't tell you the truth. They, right. they want their footnote in the, the major story, as it were. I mean, I can give you, now I think about a perfect example of this. I made a film about Stravinsky at the request of Stravinsky's widow, and it was hoped to be the definitive film about Stravinsky. And one of the people I wanted to interview was a choreographer, uh, called Serge Lifar. He was, it was Diaghilev's last great choreographer. And he wanted to be interviewed in French, which is fine, but he also wanted to be interviewed at the hotel in Montreux, where Nabokov lived. And I later discovered that he'd never been to that hotel before, but he thought it would be good for his image if I interviewed him in the same hotel where Nabokov lived. Interesting, interesting. They're bonkers. Anyway, the interview went well, but suddenly towards the end of the interview, he started to tell this story. He said, uh, I arrived in Venice. I went over to the Lido. I looked up at the hotel where Sergei Pavlovich was, Diaghilev was staying. He looked very ill to me. I went back across the lagoon. I found a doctor. We came, etc., 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 etc. And then the concluding remarks were, and then in my arms, on the night of August the 29th, and I always remember the date because it happens to be my birthday, in my arms, mm. Sergei Pavlovich Diaghilev died. And oh. as he said died, tears were pouring down his cheeks. I mean, literally sobbing. And I thought, but well, I don't say anything. I'll wait. I'll pause and see what he said. The problem with the story is there's not a word of truth in it. He wasn't... <laughs> He wasn't what do there. you do when you're recording someone who's lying to well, you well, just, not, to, just, not, to hold their, just to hold their seat at the table of history? Well, exactly. But then the question is, I knew that this story was not true, uh, but do I include it in the film or do I not include it in the film? Now, all of my films, without exception, have no narration. So I can't have a narrator, even as distinguished narrator as you, to say, well, actually, chaps, that story is not true, but <laughs> it's a good story, isn't it? Lied. Right. What do you do? Eventually, I included it, knowing it wasn't true, because you could see this. That was filmed in 1980. Diaghilev had died in 1929. So here we are, 50-some-odd years later, and you can still see the impact that that extraordinary man Diaghilev had right. on someone like Serge Lifar by the fact he's bursting into tears. I mean, I got fed up with the number of people I've met over the years in whose arms X, Y, and Z have died. <laughs> I, I mean, Rostropovich, the great cellist, once told me, in my arms Prokofiev died, completely forgetting to mention that 
that couldn't possibly have been true because when right. Prokofiev died, he died the same day as Stalin and the entire center of Moscow was cordoned off. So how right. Rostropovich smuggled himself in in order that Prokofiev could very conveniently die in his arms was a question which I don't think he was prepared to answer. As you well know, you know, documentary filmmaking, stories that involve the past, you're going back and talking to rock and roll stars about Woodstock. It doesn't matter what it is, you know. Memory becomes this watercolor. It becomes this very, very blurry, undeveloped Polaroid. And that's how they remember it. That's absolutely true. I, I once made a film with the, the great English composer William Walton. And Walton, right. arguably, is most famous for having written coronation marches for various sort of queens and kings. And the first big hit he had was for the coronation of George VI, Queen Elizabeth's father, for which he wrote Crown Imperial. Right, so I now go to, I'm now interviewing Walton, who is very old, but very articulate. He also spoke very, very slowly, so I won't do that. But he said, you know, I wrote that <laughs> thing called Crown Imperial for uh, whatever he was called. It's called George VI, William. Oh, yeah, yes, George something or other. Um, and then I wrote another one for his daughter. What was she called? Uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth II. Oh, yes, yes. And that was called uh, Orb and Scepter. And now I'm writing another one for the next king, uh, 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 Charles something or other, and that's called The Bed Majestical. So I said, William, wait a second, where do you get these wonderful titles from? Oh, dear boy, don't be so silly. Crown Imperial, Auburn Scepter, Bed Majestical. It's a line from Henry V. There's no line of Henry V at all. But it's just a great thought. You know, that the three, since he, he wrote the music for Laurence Olivier's film version of Henry V. You're beginning to terrify me. I should be downing all of British history now as it's been recounted <laughs> by the Brits. What, how much of it is true? <laughs> well, British history, very little. Filmmaker Tony Palmer. If you love hearing stories of how directors approach their work, be sure to check out my conversation with Stephen Daldry. His films include Billy Elliot, The Hours, The Reader, and Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. I love editing. You do? It's my favorite bit of the process. It, it is. And Why? A film is written three times. You write it to start it, you, and you rewrite it as you make it, and then you do the final and proper write as you put it all together. And it's like a jigsaw puzzle. And I would imagine that the experience of editing makes anyone a better filmmaker in terms of teaching you what you need to have in the can. People say to me, you know, what should I do to learn how to make a film? Just go and buy Final Cut Pro and just start shooting stuff and then just start editing and you'll learn everything you need to know about making a movie from editing. Hear more of my conversation with Stephen Daldry at heresthething.org. After the break, Tony Palmer talks about the enduring trait he believes all great artists possess. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. 
It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super-comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Tony Palmer's prolific work includes not one or two, but three films about British composer Benjamin Britten. Britten was the subject of Palmer's very first film, which was released in 1967. He was in his mid-twenties then, and making his way up the ranks at the BBC. No, the very first film I made, I actually inherited. I had worked with my boss... Humphrey Burton, who was biographer of, of Leonard Bernstein, amongst others, he and I were developing a film about Benjamin Britten. Britten had always resisted having a film made about him at home. He didn't mind coming into a studio. He didn't mind being filmed in a concert. But no way was anybody going to get anywhere near his home. No, why? He wanted privacy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was already in the classical world incredibly famous, especially after the war requiem. And he just didn't need it, didn't want it. I was also told, interestingly enough, I should never, ever mention to Britain the name of John Schlesinger, wonderful director John Schlesinger, because he'd made a 10-minute little film about Britain in, I think, 1958 or 59, which Britain apparently had absolutely hated. And every time I looked at the film, I couldn't see why he hated it. Many years later, Peter Pears, uh, Britain's lover, and the great tenor, said to me, well, he, he's not sure whether Ben made a pass at Schlesinger or Schlesinger made a pass at Ben, <laughs> but it had gone wrong. So that's why you can't... There was make... something afoot. There, there was, was something, something afoot, afoot. there. Yeah. Anyway, Humphrey Burton had spent years trying to set up a film about Benjamin Britten. 1967 was the opening of the big new concert hall, which is now one of the great concert halls of the world. And it was going to be what is, in effect, a state occasion. The Queen was coming, members of the royal family, and it was going to be the grand inauguration of this wonderful, wonderful concert hall. So Britain was eventually persuaded that we'd be there filming the Queen anyway. So you might as well go along with this and give us a bit of help, as it were. So that was all set up. And then uh, we were due to start filming on a Monday. And on the previous Wednesday, Humphrey Burton, who was making the film, he got fired 
by the BBC. And he got fired because it had been leaked to the London Evening Press that he was off to set up a commercial radio station. Now, if you'd worked for the BBC, the notion that you were going to abandon ship and go and set up a, a commercial radio station, a television station, that was anathema. And there were cries of betrayal, betrayal, betrayal. So uh, I'm sort of sitting in Oldborough in Suffolk, where Britain lived, um, thinking, what the hell do I do? Uh, Humphrey Burton, my boss, the mayor, is going to make the film. Fine. And I was also in, in a hotel that had no phone in the room. So there was endless knocks on the door. There's a phone call for you. Come downstairs. And then it was a, a man, probably doesn't mean too much to your American listeners, but a man called Hugh Weldon was one of the greats of public service broadcasting. And it was Hugh Weldon on the phone. Now, apart from Hugh Weldon being the head of television, effectively, he was also military cross. I mean, he was a very distinguished soldier. So the conversation went a bit like this. Palmer? Yes, sir. Don't panic. I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not panicking. He said, the cavalry are coming. And then slammed the phone down. I had no idea what that meant. So I go back upstairs, still now in a state of real panic. 20 minutes later, knock, knock, knock on the door. And I said to the poor manager of the hotel who kept running up and down the stairs, I said, I don't care who it is, but I'm not coming. He said, I think you'll want to take this call. I said, why? Who is it? It's Mr. Britton on the phone. So I go, I knew Britton by now. No. Oh, yeah, I knew him by now. But so, I mean, I wasn't thrown by that, but sort of having to explain myself. And when he comes on the phone, he says, Tony, he always called me Tony, he said, don't worry. We've heard nothing to worry about. I think you should come up and have tea in our house with me and Peter and uh, we'll discuss what we do. And I remember two things from, from that tea. One, he couldn't sit still. He was cutting this really beautiful fruit cake, which I remember, he, I can taste it even today. And then the second thing was, the two of them were giggling all the time while telling me, don't worry, we'll get you through it, we'll get you through it. So I said, fine. Years and years later, after Britain had died, and I began to make other films about Britain, and especially with uh, Peter Pierce. And I asked Peter, you remember that occasion? Why were you giggling? You know, was it something I was wearing, something I said, or did I smell wrong? He said, no, he said, you missed the point. He said, we never wanted to make that film. Humphrey had talked us into it. And we thought, now we're stuck with you, and you're clearly an idiot and have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> We'll go along with we're it. We're stuck with the B. We're stuck. We're stuck with the B squad here. Oh <laughs> yes, shit! Absolutely, it's B squad. The D squad or the, the D squad. The Z, Z list. Z, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So this is your Bruno Walter moment at the at Carnegie Hall. You get summoned to conduct. You step up. This is your Leonard Bernstein moment to step into the sunlight and take over. How did it go? What was the experience like for you? Well, I mean, it, to direct. it was, in fact, the first color film of the BBC ever to be networked in America. It went out as a bell telephone hour, which was a, a tremendous thrill. And I mean, it, sure. it was not unsuccessful. But unfortunately, it came to the attention of one John Lennon, who summoned me again and said, now then, he said, now that you're well established at the BBC, I just made one sort of quite short film, it's about 55 minutes. Uh, now you're going to do something serious. And I said, right, what? And he said, there are all these musicians who ought to appear on the BBC. The, either they refuse to appear on the BBC or they don't like the idea of appearing on the BBC. It's more or less the same. Uh, and I said, like who? He said, well, can you imagine Jimi Hendrix appearing on the BBC? And I said, well, tell me what the problem is. He said, well, you know, you're the camera, 
And over there is Jimi Hendrix playing as wonderfully as he does. But between the camera and Jimi Hendrix, there are an awful lot of gyrating nubiles who are in the way. Yes. And that's insulting to Hendrix as a man and also more particularly as a musician. And for that reason, a great list of musicians, said John, will not appear on the BBC. It's your job to get them on there without the gyrating nubiles. And he gave me this extraordinary list. Hendrix was one. Cream was another. Frank Zappa was another. There's a story and a half. Eric Burden and the Animals, Donovan. Now, at that point, none of these people had appeared on television, on, on the BBC. So we made a film, Pink Floyd. It was the first time Pink Floyd had ever appeared on television. And oddly enough, I was at school with Roger Waters of Pink Floyd, but that, he was the only one I knew personally. What, what year was this? 1968. So John said, well, I will make the introductions. You make the film. So I said, fine. <laughs> so I went back to the BBC, slightly riding the crest of a very small wave as a result of the Benjamin Britten film, and said, now I'm going to make a film called All My Loving, which is about the Beatles, I said, lying. It wasn't just about the Beatles. It was about what that group of people represented. Great musicians. The Beatles are the Trojan horse. Yeah, great musicians, but also people who were articulate and had something to say and wanted to say it clearly and loudly on the BBC. So we made the film. The BBC absolutely hated it. That was predictable to some extent. David Attenborough wrote me a memo, right. which I've still got, in which he said, this film is a disgrace. Over my dead body will this film ever be shown on the BBC. He was then controller of the BBC. And we were kept waiting for nine months. We couldn't get it on the air. We were rescued nine months or so later by the new head of music, who was a man called John Culshaw, who ran Decca Record Company, with whom I'd worked and had become a very good friend. And he looked at the film and said, well, we have to get this on. We have to get it on peak viewing hour. So we were then taken to see the man who was controller of BBC One, I mean, the main channel, who said he'd obviously been very well briefed because as I went in, he just waved his hand at me. I don't want any discussion, he said. I will trade you three Fs for two pisses. <laughs> in other words, if you get rid of three Fs, I'll let yeah. you have two pisses, show the film. So that was that. And that caused, if I may say so, a sensation, that film. Now, when you say that the BBC didn't want to show it, did they not want to show anything on that subject? They didn't want to show that. Did they offer you any explanation? Nothing on that subject, nothing from that oeuvre, not those particular people. What was their reasoning? Their reasoning was that popular music on television at that time consisted of two shows, one of which was called Jukebox Jury, where four people sat in a line and were played a new piece of music and they had to push a button one to five. That was it. And then the other thing was, I mentioned them, Top of the Pops, where you had all these gyrating new worlds yes. and no real appreciation of the music itself. And what we had presented in All My Loving was a very articulate people, names I mentioned, who had a lot to say about the world in which they lived. Don't forget that's the time of the Vietnam War and other deeply divisive social issues. They wanted to talk about it. They wanted to talk about what their, they thought their role as musicians was in that society. And they weren't going to be shut up. And that's what that film managed to express. And who, by your estimation, was among the most articulate of the subjects? Well, the, I mean, the two obvious ones who swing to mind are John Lennon and Paul McCartney. I mean, McCartney had a lot right. to say on that subject. Sure. But also the other one from a slightly oblique angle was Frank Zappa, 
Now, you had, you had a little bit of a lilt when you talked about him before. What was the story with Zappa that was amusing or interesting? Well, I mean, I later made, I think, the worst film in the entire history of the universe, in spite of the fact that it has a colossal cult following called 200 Motels. I don't regret making 200 Motels. <laughs> but, I mean, I had a deeply upsetting experience not many years ago. The 100th anniversary of the premiere of The Rite of Spring caused me to be invited to numerous orchestral organizations on the west coast of America, mostly in California, of which the most auspicious, I suppose, was for the music school in, Los a in UCLA. And what did they perform? Rite of Spring, Firebird, what did they do? Well, no, this was a pure lecture. In most of the events, what happened was they played bits of Stravinsky in the first half. I then talked for 20 minutes, and then they played The Rite of Spring. But on this right. occasion, it was just purely a lecture. And I rambled on for about an hour about Stravinsky and Prokofiev and Shostakovich and what all the great Russian composers had undergone, Brachmaninoff, had suffered in the 20th century, partly as a result of Stalin and others. So this was a very somber and serious address. I don't think there were too many jokes. Um, there were three or 400, I can't remember, but that sort of size audience. And at the end of the one-hour lecture, uh, the interlocutor said, uh, looking at the audience, said, would anybody like to ask Mr. Palmer a question? And one guy, almost in the first row, put his hand up straight away and he said, uh, yes, sir, can you tell me what Frank Zappa was like? I thought, I've just been talking about 30 million dead in the... And all he yeah. wants to know is What's about Frank Zappa. How Stalin tortured Rachmaninoff and you want to hear about it. Yeah, exactly. Well, Don't you go where the huskies go. Don't you eat that yellow snow. I remember, I remember yes. my Zappa lyrics from my pot-smoking days. But when you've examined the worlds, the universes of classical, the late great maestros and composers of the repertoire and popular music... You know, there's nothing in my mind like popular music in terms of its ephemeral nature. There's many people who come up and they have that opportunity, they take the stage, they have that moment to capture the world's attention, and they go away. Most of them don't make it. Most of them don't go to Mount Olympus, if you will. And the ones who do, I'm wondering, what do Stravinsky and Wagner and the Beatles and the Who have in common? Meaning those that endure... What do they have in common? Is it the same in popular music as it is for classical music? Well, I can answer the question, I think, in a slightly uh, tangential way. Initially, the thing that attracts me to all of these people that I've made films about, whether you're talking about Maria Callas or Margot Fontaine or Stravinsky that you mentioned, or even the Beatles, is there's one element which they've all got, which is courage whether you're talking about intellectual courage or emotional courage or artistic courage or, in some cases, physical courage. I remember Margot Fontaine trying to explain to me one day, uh, when she, in, later in her life, uh, when she was just on tour as a solo star artist, uh, sometimes with Nureyev, sometimes not with Nureyev, she'd say, you know, we'd go to a new theatre which we didn't know. It's a wooden stage, fine, but wood moves. And sometimes you have little nails sticking up out of the wood. Now, if they have not prepared the stage properly, or even if they've not swept the stage properly, I'm standing in the side of the stage, and I'm hearing my music coming up, and then I hear my cue, and I, whoops, off I go. If I land on one foot, and that foot slips or gets on a nail because the stage has not been properly prepared, my career is over. So in that single moment, there is an act of physical courage which is beyond most of us. 
And I think all of the people that I've dealt with exhibit that courage in one form or another. And that's something I'm in awe of, attracted to, want to celebrate. I mean, I, I've sometimes been accused of, of making films where all I've chosen to do is denigrate, if you see what I mean. I mean, big film I made about Menuhin got, got me into a hell of a lot of trouble. You're referring to the great violinist Yehudi Menuhin, correct? Co correct. So you did, you did a film about Menuhin, and what happened? I'd, well, in the end, he didn't approve of it. Why? <laughs> well, in his autobiography, he makes two, for me, or three, fatal admissions. The one is, he repeats over and over again, and this was, became a kind of mantra with him, that I had this wonderfully idyllic childhood, and I grew up thinking the world was lovely. Secondly, that if you look in the autobiography, as published, you can find no reference to his first wife. If you know her name was uh, Nicholas, you can find Nicholas Nola, but not Menuhin Nola. That was an interesting admission. And the third thing was that I became very puzzled by the fact that if you asked man in street, well, Yehudi was still very active, man in street, who's the most famous violinist alive? Most of them, especially in England, would say Yehudi Menuhin. He was an extraordinary man. I'm not yes. mention that. If you asked musicians who is the greatest violinist of our time, I'm not sure Yehudi would get in the top 50. So where was this? Really? Yeah. So where was this disparity? What was the problem? I went to a particular concert where he and the leader of the particular orchestra he was playing with played a Mozart double concerto. He was making lots of wrong notes. I think he was almost making it up as he goes along. The other guy who was the leader of the orchestra was, of course, absolutely spot on. But your eye and your ear went to Yehudi. Didn't matter who the other guy was. You went to right. Yehudi. But the thing that upset Yehudi was that we found, he, he had two sisters, one of whom was Hepzibah, who was a very good um, pianist, and she had died of cancer. And I discovered that he hadn't gone to her funeral. And in fact, he never mentioned it. Then I discovered that in his autobiography, he talks about playing for displaced persons after the war. And through my Benjamin Britten connection, I knew and I was certain that Britain and Menuhin had actually gone to play in the newly liberated concentration camps, not displaced persons, the actual concentration camps. There they were in Bergen-Belsen a month or so after it was liberated. Now, Yehudi means the Jew. So you can imagine the shock that that had on him. But that's why he didn't mention it. But I thought it was important to try and understand the man who was in front of us. But then the fatal observation was, or to me it was the fatal observation, was that he'd had this happy childhood. His two sisters, Hepsi was dead, died of cancer. He had another sister called Yalta, who was the little one. And we tracked down Yalta and we interviewed her. And she told a totally different story. She said, our childhood was a nightmare. You know, we were locked in cupboards. We were prevented from meeting other children because they weren't good enough for us. It was a horror story, she said. And she articulated this quite extensively. And Yehudi had said, he didn't know that we'd, oh, he knew that we'd interviewed uh, his younger sister, but he obviously didn't know what she'd said. But he kept saying, at the end uh, of the filming, uh, I'm going to persuade my mother, who is only, I think, 98, 
to allow you to film her and me together. Do, are you happy about that? She lived in Los Gatos in California. So I said, uh-huh. fine. So we dutifully trooped off to Los Gatos to film Yehudi. And there, there this midget who was five foot arrived wearing black glasses, black clothes, looking really menacing. And she invited us into her house for tea. And before anything had got going, luckily the camera was running by now, she began to tell Yehudi off in front of us. Don't do that. That's very silly. What, who do you think you are? And you just saw it in one. Mm. So our portrait of Yehudi Menuhin was, if I say warts and all, it wasn't there to diminish him in any way whatsoever. It was to celebrate the man. How had he managed to do this in this background? Margot Fontaine was the same. How did it come about that the most, one of the most famous ballerinas of her time finished up in a mud hut in Panama when there was no water, no, uh, no running water, no telephone, nothing? She was living off cornflakes. How did that happen? And we have to try and understand it. Director Tony Palmer. If you're enjoying this conversation, be sure to follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Tony Palmer discusses his seven-hour and 45-minute film about Richard Wagner. It starred Richard Burton, Laurence Olivier, and Vanessa Redgrave. The L.A. Times called it one of the most beautiful films ever made. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX Anniversary Sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super-comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. When you make over 100 films in the course of a career, 
there are opportunities to experiment with different styles of storytelling. And while Tony Palmer has certainly been adventurous, one thing he decided he would not use in his films is voiceover narration. The story has to speak for itself. I mean, this my job, as it were, is to present the evidence and let you make up your mind. I mean, at no point in the Menuhin film, since we talked about it, does anybody say anything derogatory of Menuhin, other than the eyewitnesses, as it were. And then at the end, you have to decide, you know, was this guy goody two-shoes? Is he just hiding really important moments in his past? It makes your job quite difficult. But I mean, I, I don't only make films about music, but I mean, the music films I've made, I would consider the music as an essential narrative point a part of the film. The music drives the story forward. I mean, Rachmaninoff, since you mentioned him, I mean, Rachmaninoff provided me with plenty of musical evidence for what had actually happened in his life. And so I was able to construct a film entirely around pieces of music. I mean, a lot of people talking and a lot of, I hope, very pretty shots of where he lived and what he did, especially in Russia. But it's, it's essentially the music is the driving force, the narrative, of the film. That makes it, it's, it's not easy. It's difficult. But I'm a better editor, I think, than I am a director. And I mean, I can edit a two-hour film in, in 10, 14 days, simply because it's very clear in my mind what I want to do. And because I, right. I could sing most of whatever composer I'm working on, I could sing the music backwards. So when you're making a film that's seven hours and 45 minutes, the Wagner film, does the length of the film present itself prior to the making? So, for example, now you do a podcast for like Netflix or iHeart or someone, and they'll say to you, literally, they'll say, we only break even after five episodes. We don't make any money. The gravy is episode six, seven, and eight. And we don't care how, you have, how bloated it needs to be, how much you have to stretch it out, <laughs> how much that. you have to kind of pump. Oh, yeah, no, very true. And they'll say, we need an eight-episode show, even if there isn't eight episodes there in the story. Now, we, in your case, tell us about the uh, length and the scope of your incredible project about Wagner. Well, I mean, if you're, if you're dumb enough or stupid enough uh, to make films about composers, I've made a few, then as far as the 19th century is concerned, the shadow of Wagner hangs over everything. You can't avoid it. At some point, you've got to face up to it and do it. Wagner, of course, is immensely complicated because of what happened to his music in the Third Reich, among others. And so that makes trying to find a perspective on the story of Wagner difficult. The other thing which is difficult is that I think at the time that we made the film, which was for the 100th anniversary of his death, 1983, we reckoned that there were more books about Wagner than any other person who had ever lived, including Jesus Christ and including Napoleon. So you're suddenly faced with this mountain of information. When we were planning the film about Wagner, we didn't really know that it would be either that short or that long. We, we just knew it was a big subject, would require big film. And so we were lucky in that I'd already been approached by Vittorio Storaro, great Oscar-winning cameraman. Now, have you got a project that would interest me? Yes, sir, I have. It's called Wagner. I'm there, he said. So we got Vittorio Storaro straight away. Richard Burton, oddly enough, was not the first choice. It was Albert Finney, who I'd worked with before, wouldn't give me a start date. And of course, we were under some pressure to ha have a start date that we could stick to. And in fact, the, the whole film, the whole seven hours, 45 minutes, it only took seven months to film. I mean, it wasn't long and about three months then to edit. But going back to the, the main subject, when we started on the project, 
I mentioned this chap earlier, Decker, John Culshaw. John Culshaw had recorded many Wagner operas, and he took me to meet Wagner's grandson, Wolfgang. And Wolfgang and I got very drunk with John Culshaw and Wolfgang's wife. I think he was then his mistress, but became his wife, uh, at a hotel in Dusseldorf. And at the end of this long drunken lunch, he said, making this film, you'll find two important pieces of advice. He said, the one is that as you go on, uh, you will discover that everybody, without exception, knows exactly where my grandfather was on the third Thursday of the fourth month of 1872. He said, you will even find, and this turned out to be true, you will even find somebody who knows how many eggs he had for breakfast and how long he cooked the eggs for. That was turned out to be absolutely true. But then the other thing he said was, you have to understand about my grandfather, that if he were alive today, we're talking about the end of the 1970s, he said, there's only one place he would want to work. He'd go to Hollywood straight away. Hollywood all has all the technical needs and money and, and so on and so on. He'd be straight in there in Hollywood. I think that would have been a shock for Hollywood. But nonetheless, those two pieces of advice were kept up. They were like mantras. They kept me going and kept me sane all the time. Richard Burton was very confused about why I'd chosen him. What role do Burton and Olivier and Vanessa Redgrave play if you have no announcers? What do they do? Are they hosts on camera? No, it's a drama. It's a, not a documentary. It's a drama. It's a, it's a, so Richard Burton... Seven hour and 45... Yeah, Richard Burton <laughs> plays uh, Richard Wagner. Vanessa Redgrave Roger. plays uh, Cosima, his wife. And the three great knights, Olivier, Richardson and Gielgud, they played the three ministers of Ludwig II of Bavaria. And Ludwig II, later in life, was Wagner's principal patron. In fact, the famous ring cycle is dedicated to my co-creator, Ludwig of Bavaria. It's an extraordinary situation. Once Olivier was on board, of course, everybody wanted to be in the film because they wanted to be with Olivier or they wanted to be with Burton. Um, Richard uh, got a bit annoyed by this and said to me one day, he said, why the hell did you choose me? And I said, well, Richard, firstly, you're both called Richard. How about that? Secondly, you talk too much. How about that? Thirdly, you definitely drink too much. And fourthly, you have indescribable charm, as I'm sure the original Wagner did. Otherwise, he couldn't have got away with what he did. And lastly, I said, don't take this the wrong way. You both have a strong element of genius. And that I want to celebrate. I mean, the crucial point about the Wagner film is that it explores as a drama written by a very good English dramatist called Charles Wood, who wrote Charge the Light Brigade, you might know, or actually wrote the Beatles yeah. film, Help, is that it explores what was the politics of Germany at that time in the middle of the 19th century. And Wagner was absolutely determined to unify Germany, to make it a power in the land. And having failed to do that by burning down an opera house, which is what he did, or he was involved in the burning down of an opera, then issuing endless pamphlets about this, that, and everything you've ever heard of, finally thought, well, the only way to do it is to write a huge music drama, The Ring Cycle, for four operas, because that will show them, that will show them what the real purpose of being a united Germany is. And of course, that led to Hitler, and that made it very, very complicated. But I think the, the most telling image in the whole film this was a guy who had wanted notices published all over Germany, dead or alive, Wagner, 500 talers. 
That was certainly a part of it. He was on the run from creditors, from political adversaries, from people who wanted to do him down. Finally, in August 1876, this tiny little man, he was only about five foot three, five foot four, stood on the top of a hill behind which was this theatre he had built with Ludwig's money, the theatre in Bayreuth, and the crowned heads of Europe came up to say, hello, Mr. Wagner, it's an honour to meet you. Can you imagine an artist centre stage greeting the crowned heads of Europe? I mean, that's never happened since. It probably happened a bit in, in the time of the Greeks, but that's it. This was an artist, a musician, a composer, and yet he was centre stage. Not all these conniving, mendacious politicians. My courtiers. Now, you spent your entire career over there, if you will. You never lived in America. You never lived in Los Angeles and made films in California. Well, I, I did a huge series called All You Need Is Love, the history of American popular music, where, I mean, I was camped in the United States for a year, right. uh, tracking down everybody. But you never wanted to relocate here and, and make film. You've made documentary films and narrative films. You never wanted to become just a regular filmmaker shooting uh, narrative films over here and make... Uh, well, I think I would want to say that I never had the opportunity. Nobody ever asked me. I mean, I just kind of plodded on doing my own things. I mean, I I worked at the BBC, as I mentioned. I left the BBC after about five years because I felt it was very restricting. And I've been a freelance ever since. And as you mentioned, I mean, I've made rather a lot of films. I mean, I made about 120 films entirely as a freelance, trying to find the money, then doing it, then getting it on television and so on and so on and so on. I'm a, I'm a one-man band. A one-man band, indeed. This episode was produced by Kathleen Russo, Kerry Donahue, and Zach McNeese. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. 
Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. 